But if you got your Bibles, let's turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We've got, uh, after today, one more week in our unpopular series. And as you're standing, thank you for standing and reading of the honor of God's Word here. And um, we're looking at the abiding life of a true disciple this morning. It's, it's not a popular message, right? We just... Pastor, we just need to get people saved. That's all they need. But so many times we fail to talk about the abiding life. It's not a popular message, but it's certainly one that permeates Scripture. Uh, John 15, starting with verse 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine keeper, or the keeper of the vineyard, the vine dresser in some translations. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain or abide in me and I in you just as the branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in our own divine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, they throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this that you produce much fruit and prove, demonstrate, if you will, to be my disciples. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the words of our Lord who made it clear that salvation is not just about a religious experience. It's about a life of abiding in Christ. You being in us and us being in you. So much that it brings a change of character and purpose in life. Lord, help us to understand how this is lived out daily so that we might prove that we are truly your disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You ever tried to trick anybody with anything that was fake? Uh, Some of you have heard these stories before because you've been around. Maybe you've heard me speak to men before. Or maybe you've just heard me talk to a group of teenage boys about some of the things I did when I was younger. And uh, most of it didn't involve things that I would regret too awful bad. But I did grow up in a neighborhood where there was kind of a gang of guys. And In fact, in our neighborhood, I thought it was the most unusual neighborhood in all of Madison County when I was growing up there on Madison Oaks Road. The reason I thought it was an unusual neighborhood is because we had a paved cul-de-sac that you had to drive down a dirt road to get to. And I didn't know of anywhere else that you had a paved cul-de-sac that did not connect to pavement on either end, but you had to drive down a dirt road to get to that paved cul-de-sac. Now, that road, that dirt road is paved today, but that dirt road made for a lot of fun times when I was growing up because the kind of the gang that I ran around with would look for ways to go to that dirt road. This is what happened when we got bored with hide-and-go-seek. When we had played enough football and everything else and it started getting dark early in the wintertime, we said, how can we play tricks on the cars that make their way up and down this dirt road? 
And because uh, there was a lot of traffic. Again, they had to make their way to the cul-de-sac that I lived on, right? So there was a lot of traffic on that dirt road. And, and so we would go and we would do different things. And we had, we had heard other people, you know, we had heard about the trick with the fake purse. Put a purse out there with some fake money sticking out. Well, none of us could have the guts to steal our sister's purse or the, uh, none of us had any money. So we were like, well, maybe, maybe the fake purse trick's not going to work. And so we heard about how guys used to take an old um, tire somewhere, maybe off of a tire swing or something, and wrap it in paper bags and put a price tag on the side and lay it on the side of the road so that when a car passed it, we could pull it into the bushes with us. And so we would do that from time to time, but eventually people started stopping right at the tire because they knew what we were up to. And then I noticed that any time that a snake would cross the road, because every dad uh, that lived in that area had a pickup truck, that they would stop and they would park a tire on that snake, and they would spin out, and they would kill the snake. And I said, oh, we can have a lot of fun with these guys. And so, so that we, we would take an old bicycle inner tube and cut it and, and make it long like a snake. We'd fill it with sand, tie one end, tie the other, put a string on it, and we, it was fishing line, and we would lay it on one side of the road, pull, it, pull the fishing line across the road, lay a rock, make our way up into the bushes and up to trees somewhere. And when these trucks would come down the road, we would start pulling our snake across the road, and we'd watch these men stop in their trucks and park their tire on it and spin out and kill the snake and get out to see if the snake was dead, and we would have already pulled the snake up into the woods with us, and they wouldn't find it. We'd have a lot of fun with that. We did a lot of other things where we just kind of had fake stuff. There was the fake rope trick where me, I would be on one side of the road, maybe my brother or somebody would be on the other side of the road, and we would act like just two teenage boys standing on the side of the road until a car would come, and as they would get close, we would pretend that we picked up a rope and start to pull tight, and the the car would just kind of slam on brakes and stop right there and wait for us to put down whatever it is we were holding, but it was all fake. We weren't holding anything. Now, it looked like a lot of what we were doing, a lot of those things that were fake, were designed to look real. But it was really just a bunch of teenage boys playing games, playing tricks on people. A lot of fun in my neighborhood growing up playing tricks like that. A lot of Christians are kind of the same way. They, they do a lot of things that look real, but then you might find out later that they were just a bunch of people playing games, playing games. I remember hearing a song about those soldiers that were casting lots as Jesus was being crucified. It was a song called Playing Games at the Foot of the Cross. There are a lot of Christians that are trying to trick everybody. They're playing games, but one day it will be revealed as to whether or not we were the real deal or whether we were just playing games. Now, in this unpopular series, I hope that, which I hope has not been too unpopular with you, but certainly talking about those areas of radical discipleship that are unpopular in a rebellious world, we've related so many of these areas to those seven summits from uh, the, the provision summit, the presentation summit, learning how to present the gospel, providing an environment for that gospel, the, the, the preparation, preparing for a, a life of discipleship, the purity summit, which is definitely calling us to radical discipleship, living uh, pure in an impure world, having a purpose and having a passion. As we get into today, kind of talking about our pursuit, what's God called us to be from this day on? And what's God called us to be as a church? As we bring up a generation of disciples who follow Christ, our desire is to launch them out into this world and for us to be men and women 
in this world who are not of the world, but we are people who abide in Christ, that we are the real deal. That it's not that, okay, well, you know, they were, they were in church as young people. They grew up and they memorized Scripture. They, they seemed to serve the Lord, but as they went off to college, they got a career, they just disappeared. Or sometimes it's the parents who disappeared. They got active and involved in a church somewhere, and they, they tried to live the Christian life because they wanted the best for their kids. But then when their kids left the nest, they, they didn't see the desire anymore because the church was just really there so that the youth pastor could keep their kids, uh, we, we used to joke in the 80s, everything was about drug, sex, and rock and roll, so the youth pastor could keep their kids out of trouble, and, and now they don't need that anymore. And so few, it seems, around the world today really discover that it's so much more than that. It's about a life in Christ, abiding in Christ, in Christ in us the hope of glory. And when we look at this text here in John chapter 15, we see this great paradox. I spoke of that this morning in our life group of divine sovereignty, God's work in choosing and and working in and through us, but also of human responsibility because we're the ones who are called to abide or live and place our very livelihood in Christ so that his life can flow through us. And we see that paradox. Is it, is it God choosing us and, and working in and through us, or is it us choosing to submit to him and allow his life to flow through us? And the answer to that is yes. And if anybody here says they can fully explain all of that, you can talk to me later because I sometimes can't get my mind around certain principles, but I know that they're true, that God is doing a work, and we're called to cooperate with him in the work that he's doing. The focus of this text, though, is not so much on who we are, but who he is. And I want us to see the activities of Christ and his Father in John chapter 15. And when we can get excited about who God is and what he's doing and has been doing through his son Jesus, and Jesus through the Holy Spirit who lives in us, and we understand it's the activity of God, then it will cause us to desire to submit to that activity and let God do his work in us and through us in order to change us that we might be agents of change in the world. And so what's God doing in this text? Well, the first thing that we see is that he is, and I believe it's never been so evident as it is in the world today, he is purging the fruitless pretenders. We see a purging of fruitless pretenders in this text. In verse 1, we see that it's ultimately all about who Christ is when he says, I am the true vine. That is the seventh of John's I am statements when Jesus said, I am uh, the bread of life. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except by me. When he said, I am the resurrection and the life, there were seven times that he made I am statements, and in the Greek, it was in the emphatic. In other words, for those of you who have studied Spanish before, you know that you don't have to use the personal pronoun. If you were to say, I am, in Spanish, you could say, soy. You wouldn't have to say yo soy, but you would say yo soy if you were trying to be emphatic. And so some of the Spanish students in here are saying, thanks for the lesson. We already knew that. But if you put 
the pronoun in there, you were saying I, emphasizing who I am. In the Greek, it's the same word. When Jesus said, I am, he was speaking emphatically, I want you to know that I am the source of life. The Jewish listener would have said, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the I am. And they're exactly right. He was claiming to be God in the flesh in the presence of this Jewish audience. They would also understand that when he said, I am the true vine, that the vineyard or a vine often represented Israel. And so he's not only claiming to be deity, he's claiming to be the source and sustenance of Israel. Everything that these Jewish listeners had hoped to be a part of because they were Israelites, because they were Jewish, he was saying, if you miss me, you miss it all and you miss the point. Now, John uses a lot of imagery in his gospel, and he points out actually that Jesus was using imagery in his preaching and teaching. When you go back to when Jesus went to the Feast of Tabernacles in John 6 and 7 and 8, and in that, those conversations of Jesus at the Feast of the Tabernacles, he, Jesus waited, he used some imagery. When the, at that point at the feast where the high priest would pour the drink offering and everybody would get quiet and watch for the water to flow, Jesus said, is anyone thirsty? Let him come to me. And Jesus was explaining that if they drink of him, they would never thirst again. He got their attention using certain imagery. When that feast of tabernacles had ended and those four Olympic-sized torches were extinguished and they could smell the smoke in the air, but it was all of a sudden dark, Jesus would speak into that darkness and say, I am the light of the world. And while this party is over, if you put your faith and trust in me, the party never ends. You will have life You will never walk in darkness again when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And he was using imagery here as he's getting ready, as as he's preparing for his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. And they leave, and, and many scholars believe are walking near the temple gate. Above the temple gate, there would have been a vine representative of Israel. They would have these grape vines even on their coins it was such a big part of it. It was speaking of the vine to an Israelite was speaking of the stars and stripes to an American. I mean, it was a symbol of national pride, but it, it was also religious pride because it tied them as the covenant people of God. That's what the vine imagery represented, life, fruitfulness, abundance, success, meaning, hope, purpose. Everything had to do with because we are of Israel. But the prophets prophesied that Jesus would be, or the Messiah would be the hope of Israel. And if they were rejecting Jesus, they were rejecting Israel's hope. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 7, when Paul is pouring out his heart over the Jewish people who had rejected Christ, he went on and explained, he said, not all that are of Israel are Israel. What did he mean that? Not not every Israelite was a true Israelite. He was saying, listen, there are people who are part of our national heritage. There are people who are religious outwardly, but they're not the real deal on the inside. And they will reject, ultimately, the Messiah. 
He would explain that there would be a remnant that would follow him, but only a remnant would follow him. And there would be many who were connected to Israel religiously that thought they were part of the vine. And he would say, but I am the vine. And though you've been connected to me somewhat, you haven't really allowed my life to flow into your life and change who you are. And so when we understand what he's saying and the imagery that he was using in this situation, and he says, my father is the vine dresser. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. The dead branches where the Spirit of God and the life of Christ is absent. absent. He's going to remove those branches. Again, not here a picture of backslidden Christians, but a picture of those who were religious people but did not have the life of Christ on the inside. In verse 6, he says, if anyone does not abide or remain in me, that's the word abide. Some translations may say dwell. It's the picture of that's where you set up camp. That's where you decide this is where I'm going to live my life. It's not, it's not like a hotel where you go and you say, well, I'm going to stay a few days, but it's, it's where I live. This is where I build my life. Those who do not abide or live in this place are thrown aside like a branch. They wither, ultimately thrown into the fire, and they are burned, a picture of the final judgment that you could be in Israel but not of Israel, not a true Israelite, one who had rejected the Messiah. In, in fact, those of us who are not Jewish of, in our background and in our heritage, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're told that we are engrafted into the vine, that it wasn't something we were kind of born with, but but we're engrafted into that when we trust Christ as Savior. But the Jews have to put their faith and trust in the same Messiah that the Gentiles have to put their faith and trust in. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to whoever believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek or to the Gentile, the non-Jew. We all have to come to that eternal and abundant life the same way through Christ and Christ in us. But so many times, Jesus had to remind them of what the prophets reminded them. They were like, they were like a religious old covenant people who had made vows for when the Messiah comes, but they had turned on those vows. They were not faithful to those vows. They had experienced judgment again and again, and some would experience the ultimate judgment because they would reject the very Messiah who came into the world to save them. And some would say, well, well, God, we want to know you, we want to be faithful to you, but we, only, we, we, want, to, we want a taste of religion, but we, want, we don't want a lasting relationship. We want to make vows, but we don't want to be too serious about those vows. I, I heard uh, long before the days of cell phones and social media and all of that, that there were a couple of men who were traveling businessmen and they were having a conversation and one was saying, listen, I've noticed every time we get away from home, you seem to flirt with the other women, and you get involved in affairs and things like that. I said, that's not good, man. Your wife's going to find out eventually. And he said, oh, I, 
I never cheat on my wife within 100 miles of home. Never do that within 100 miles of home. And his friend replied, oh, so your faithfulness only goes 100 miles. Sometimes as Christians, we think that we can make a covenant with God and that he has made a covenant with us. And and, and as long as our faithfulness goes 100 miles or 50 miles or, or just a little bit down the road, that we're okay. But if it's not a lasting faithfulness, then it's revealed to be a phony faithfulness. Today, you would say, well, I'm not guilty of being one of the Jews who rejected Christ, but there are people who have just as much religion and just as little of a relationship. People that think, well, because I'm a church member, I'm okay. I joined the church. I shook the preacher's hand. I was baptized. My name was on a church roll, but just because your name is on a church roll does not mean your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. If you do not have a personal relationship where the life of Christ is living and flowing in and through you, then you're missing the point. I remember the singer Keith Green, who went to be with the Lord many years ago as a young man, but he was a great songwriter, a great preacher, and he said in the middle of one of his concerts, he said, Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. And so many of us think that, man, because I've got uh, some religion in my life, that I'm okay. And we're not okay without the life of Christ flowing in and through us. We might say, but I'm kind of connected to the things of God. Yes, but without the life-giving spirit living in you. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 7, 21 and 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful things? Didn't we do the signs and the wonders and the miracles? Didn't we cast out demons? We have to be the real deal. We cast out demons in your name. And he said, I will say to them on that day, depart from me. I never knew you. It was about religion It was about a show, but no real relationship. In Matthew 13, Jesus talks about a day when the the wheat and the tares were mixed, and there were tares growing up among the wheat, and that there would come a day. He says, listen, we we don't harvest that too early because we don't want to damage the wheat, but there will come a day when the harvesters will separate the wheat from the tares. And on judgment day, there will be many that are found out and proven to be phony, that were allowed to be around the things of God and the people of God, but they never had a true relationship with Christ, not sincere belief that resulted from turning from sin and self. We call that repentance, putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Romans 8 says, our spirit, his spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There are some of you here this morning, you could say, I'm not sure that the Spirit of God is bearing witness with my spirit that I'm truly a child of God. I'm not sure his spirit is witnessing that. I'm not sure there was sincere faith and and repentance, but I just got a dose of religion somewhere along the way. Listen, if it is for real, there's going to be a pruning that follows. We see the first, there's the purging, but second in this passage, we see the pruning of faithful followers. You go back to verse 2, the second part. He says, he prunes every branch that produces fruit. Wait a minute, it's not fair. If I'm producing fruit, God, then don't hurt me. Why do we prune? So that they would produce more fruit. So that more fruit will be produced. 
you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. He says, listen, you're saved, you're there, but you're going to learn this abiding life, so remain in me, and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it abides on the vine. So learn how to live an abiding life, so neither can you unless you abide in me allowing his life to flow in and through us. When that's happening, that we are not spiritually dead, but we are spiritually alive, God still does some pruning in our life. That's why James says, count it all joy when you go through various trials because the testing of your faith is doing some pruning. It's going to give patience. It's going to make you stronger in the faith as a result of going through the seasons of pruning Pruning can be brought on because of of maybe your own sins that God needs to kind of cut out of your life, or it could be because God wants to exchange what's been good for something that's going to be so much better. And so we're to count it all joy. I love what Psalm 119 says, and every verse of Psalm 119 has something to do with the Word of God and the Word's work in our life. If you hold your finger there in John 15 and flip over to Psalm 119, uh, look at verses 67 through 71. He said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and you do what is good. You teach me your statutes. The arrogant have smeared me with lies, but I obey your precepts with all my heart Their hearts are hard and insensitive, but I delight in your instruction. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I could learn your statutes. He said, when you brought some pruning into my life, it made me a stronger Christian. The author of Hebrews argues in chapter 12 that there's no discipline that's going to seem pleasant at the time. And that God's not chastening or disciplining those who are not his, but if we're truly sons, if we're born again, then God will sometimes bring discipline or pruning into our life. If you are truly born again, if you're saying, man, I hope I'm not one of those who are being purged, if God's pruning instead of purging, you can absolutely count on the fact that when you begin to walk in a direction contrary to your repentance and the calling that you've he's placed in your life, then he will discipline you and he will start a pruning process to draw you back. If you can get into sin and not hate it and not be disciplined by God, then that's evidence that your salvation is not genuine. He disciplines those he loves to draw us back. And sometimes he brings a pruning into our life just to make us more like Jesus, just to make us more like Jesus. Malachi 3.3 says God sits as a refiner of silver. A lady heard that at a Bible study one time, and she went to a silversmith and said, what is this all about? And as he was refining silver, he said, well, see, I have to put the silver in here, and it's got to stay long enough to get all of the impurities out. The, the silver has, the molten silver, it has to stay there in the furnace long enough to get all the impurities out. And she goes, well, what if it stays too long? He says, well, it can be scorched. It could damage the silver. And she said, well, how, how do you know when it's been in the furnace long enough, when it's been in the fire long enough? He said, well, when I take it out and, and I can look at the smooth molten silver and I see my reflection, then I know that it's been in there just long enough. 
And so many times God is letting us go through the fire until he sees his image more clearly in us. The trials, the tests, the disciplines, the obstacles, the suffering are not worthy, Romans says, to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. So there's purging of those who are pretenders. There's pruning of the faithful followers of Christ. And ultimately, there's a production of a fruit that lasts. What was it about, verse 2? More fruit. Verse 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches, the one who abides in me, and I in him produces much fruit. Look down at verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit. It's a fruitfulness of life. In, six, in verse 16 of the same chapter, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. This is lasting fruit in your life. And the key is in verse 4. If we're not abiding in him, we can't do anything. There's no fruit being produced because it's got to be God producing it in us. Ultimately, we're the ones bearing the fruit. God's the one that is producing it in us and through us by his spirit. That's the abiding life, yielded to Christ, being filled with his spirit. What is the fruit? Often we think of fruit as the souls that are being saved, and and that's not exactly inaccurate. That when we live a fruitful life, our life of influence causes other people to want to come to faith in Christ. But that's not the the first example of fruit that we see, in, it's not, not the preeminent example of fruit that we see in Scripture. You go and, and you read of verses 11 through 14, he says, I've spoken of these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So many Christians that look like they're just, uh, they're hating life, you know. Man, one of these days, bless God, I'm going to cross over Jordan and be in heaven, but right now life is miserable. Sounds like a bluegrass song, doesn't it? This is my command that you love one another. So there's a joy, there's a love. Love and joy are the first two aspects of what? The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. No one has greater love than this, than someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I've commanded you, I do not call you slaves anymore because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything that I've heard from my father. He says, I'm developing some character in you. You're becoming more like me. And so the fruit that is giving evidence that you're abiding in the vine is the changed life that you're living. Now, as a result of a changed life, Yes, you're going to be telling people about Jesus. So there will be the fruit of winning people to Christ, the fruit of the cause, if you will. But the fruit of character must always precede the fruit of the cause, that he would make us more like Jesus and give us his heart for this world so that we're not hypocrites when we're trying to share Jesus with others, that we're the real deal, bearing fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the character of Christ. Obviously, that leads to works of righteousness and fruit. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Real fruit that lasts comes from what? Real faith that lasts. I want you to remember that statement. And I want you to go back to it again and again. Real fruit that lasts comes from a real 
faith that lasts, that you are abiding in the vine, the abiding life of being in the Word of God, in prayer, in worship, in fellowship, living a life in surrender. Do we have anybody here this morning that wishes Looney Tunes cartoons were still on the major networks every morning? Am I the only one? Remember those Looney Tune cartoons? I used to love them. My kids think they were shallow, but they didn't understand just how deep they really were, if you know what I'm saying. But one of, one of my favorite, they, they would show again and again, they might change the storyline a little bit, but one of my favorite was of Sam and Ralph. Anybody remember Sam and Ralph, the sheepdog and the wolf? And they went to work. And they actually lived in the same house, got up and had coffee together in the morning and packed their lunchbox, and they grabbed their lunchbox. And the sheepdog and the wolf went to work out there where the sheep were. And then they clocked in. And when they clocked in, everything changed. They went to work. They were, they were enemies. The, the wolf is trying to steal the sheep, and the sheepdog's trying to protect the wolf, and they're just kind of going at it, and they're hurting each other, and they're, they're damaging each other. And then they, they clock out, and they're buddies again. Everything's okay. Some of us as Christians, we're kind of like that. We feel like that the Christian life is Sunday morning. I clocked in, Pastor, and I went to war with the devil, and I was representing Jesus Christ. And then when I left church on Sunday, I clocked out, and me and the devil were buddies again, living the life that we wanted to live. And I felt guilty. It's time to clock in again. And I, and I clock in, and now I'm at war with the devil, and I'm going to live for Jesus. And then it's time to clock out. Me and the devil are buddies again. We'll have a cup of coffee together. That's not the abiding life. The abiding life is a 24-7 life filled with Jesus. Whether you're at work, whether you're at school, whether you're at play, whether you're on vacation, away from home, in your home. It's abiding in Christ 24-7. Don't be somebody who clocks in on Jesus and goes to war with devil for a little while and then clocks back out and everything goes back to the way it was. A real Christian, a real disciple is an abiding disciple. You're abiding in Christ. That's your life. It's who you are. It's what you're all about at all times. Would you bow your heads with me?